You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics wherever you get podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. This week, episode 234, The Siege of Savannah. The British had captured Savannah at the end of 1778, although they briefly retook control of most of the lightly populated state of Georgia, the Continentals and militia quickly forced them back into a small area in and around Savannah. When we last left the two southern armies in episode 223, the Americans had attacked the British rearguard at Stono Ferry, only to be repulsed. General Washington saw the British occupation of Savannah as a threat to the southern states particularly the largest town in the region, Charleston, South Carolina, where the British had almost succeeded in taking the city with a rather small and ill-conceived attack. Washington personally kept his primary attention on New York City, which he saw as the key to winning the war. Washington had lost New York in 1776 and probably saw it as a personal point of honor to win it back militarily. Even so, there was no serious chance of retaking New York, even after the British drawdown there, until he could get some naval support. Since that was not going to happen anytime soon, Washington did what he could to support General Benjamin Lincoln in his efforts to recapture Savannah. Washington deployed Brigadier General Charles Scott, along with several regiments, to reinforce Major General Lincoln's Southern Army. Scott had been on furlough in Virginia at the time and forwarded the regiments to General Lincoln, but personally remained in Virginia trying to recruit more troops and assisting with defenses following the Collier-Matthew raids in the Chesapeake that I discussed back in episode 221. Washington also allowed Brigadier General Lachlan McIntosh to return from duty in western Pennsylvania to resume a command in Georgia. McIntosh, you may recall, had left the South in 1777 after killing Georgia President Button Gwinnett in a duel. McIntosh was eager to get back to his home state of Georgia and joined up with Lincoln as soon as he could. With the reinforcements, General Lincoln had about 7,000 men under his command, more than double the 3,000 or so British soldiers in and around Savannah. However, the majority of these soldiers were militia. Lincoln was reluctant to try to get militia to storm well-entrenched British regulars. For an attack to be successful, General Lincoln wanted some support from the French Navy. For months, Washington had been badgering French Minister Conrad Girard, hoping to get the French fleet under Admiral d'Estaing to support an attack on New York, or barring that, to at least support the Southern Army in an attack on Savannah. Since the French fleet had arrived in the summer of 1778, it had proven to be not very helpful, passing up an attack on New York, pulling out of an attack on Newport, Rhode Island, 
and then spending the winter in Boston getting repairs to the fleet before leaving the continent entirely to head down to the West Indies. While in the West Indies, Admiral d'Estaing had received more reinforcements and had taken the islands of St. Vincent and Grenada in the early summer 1779. See episode 224. By late summer, d'Estaing was looking to pull much of his fleet out of the West Indies again before hurricane season hit and posed a threat to his fleet. In late August, a substantial French fleet, which included more than 20 ships of the line and over 4,000 French soldiers, left the West Indies for the Georgia coast. D'Estaing sent a ship to Charleston, South Carolina, to let the Americans know that he was ready to participate in a joint attack on Savannah. Almost immediately, General Lincoln set out from Charleston with 1,000 of his best soldiers to launch the cooperative effort to recapture Savannah. He also called on General McIntosh, by this time in command of American troops at Augusta, to raise as many men as he could and cooperate in the attack on Savannah. The arrival of the French fleet caught the British by surprise. The French captured the British 50-gun ship Experiment and the 24-gun ship the Ariel, as well as several other supply ships off the Georgia coast. Aboard one of the captured ships was Brigadier General George Garth on his way to succeed General Prevost as the British military commander. The captured ship also held 30,000 pounds sterling for the Savannah Garrison's payroll. Several other British ships moved upriver closer to the main British defenses at Savannah. By September 9th, D'Estaing was offloading French soldiers at Tybee Island at the mouth of the Savannah River, which was about 15 miles from the city of Savannah. A British outpost on Tybee Island fired on the French fleet. However, after the French began landing soldiers on the island, the small garrison fled and rejoined the main British force at Savannah. Over the next few days, the French took several small islands near the mouth of the Savannah River and drove British pickets back into the city. On September 12th, D'Estaing made contact with Continental General Casimir Pulaski, who had moved to Savannah as part of the army under General McIntosh, coming from Augusta. Pulaski informed D'Estaing that they were still awaiting the arrival of the main army under General Lincoln, who were still marching toward Savannah from Charleston. Lincoln's force had made it to Perrysburg, South Carolina, right on the Savannah River and about 15 miles north of Savannah. He began moving his soldiers and equipment across the river, but did not want to proceed down toward the city until he received word that the French had arrived. Lincoln had not received any word about the French fleet since he had left Charleston, where he had only received rather vague assurances that the French were going to move against Savannah. Lincoln was concerned about moving back into Georgia and against the city if the French fleet had not arrived as promised and disembarked its army on the other side of Savannah. Otherwise, the British might attack his inferior force and defeat it before the French were ready to go. So, at this point, the Americans were awaiting word of the arrival of French forces, and the French forces were awaiting word of the arrival of American forces. During this time, Admiral d'Estaing sent a messenger to British General Augustine Prevost at Savannah, calling on him to surrender to the French forces which had occupied the mouth of the Savannah River. General Prevost asked for a day to consider his position, which d'Estaing granted, 
since he was still awaiting the Americans under Lincoln anyway. In fact, though, Prevost had no intention of surrendering. He had a force of about 2,500 men in Savannah who were pretty well entrenched and supported by cannons. He had sunk the damaged frigate, the Rose, along with several smaller ships in the Savannah River at a point where it narrowed, thus creating an obstruction that would prevent the French from sailing their fleet up to the city. Prevost had also removed cannons from several ships that had made it back to Savannah and used the artillery from those ships to bolster his defenses against a land attack. In addition to his combat troops, Prevost had more than a thousand escaped slaves who had been doing whatever they could to support their British liberators. Although Prevost would not use these men in combat, he did put them to work constructing even stronger fortifications in and around the city. Prevost's request for a day to consider was simply a delaying tactic. He wanted more time to build up his defenses, and he was also awaiting the arrival of 600 soldiers under Colonel John Maitland, who had been holding out at Stono Ferry in South Carolina. The following day, Colonel Maitland's reinforcements arrived. Maitland's march to Savannah was pretty impressive by itself. His British outpost could not sail down the coast due to the presence of the French Navy. It couldn't march overland because of the Continentals. Instead, Maitland moved his force quietly over a series of coastal islands, marching his men through swamps, with many of them, including Maitland himself, sick with malaria. After several days, though, the force managed to reach Savannah. With the arrival of Maitland's reinforcements, Prevost informed Estang that, Thanks for the offer, but the British force did not intend to surrender without a fight. The French were going to have to take the city from them. Prevost had received the time he needed to put in place the defenses as best he could. He had consolidated his force in and around Savannah. His engineers created two concentric lines with each flank against the Savannah River. The British had placed artillery, constructed abatis, and earthen defenses and blocked the river. Although the French and Americans outnumbered the British force of just over 3,000 soldiers, Prevost's men had good defensive positions and held out hope that a British relief fleet from the West Indies would break the siege. Several hours after D'Estaing sent his surrender demand to Prevost, Lincoln's army arrived in Savannah. Lincoln and D'Estaing met that afternoon to discuss a plan of attack. But first there was a minor tiff. Lincoln was upset because D'Estaing's surrender demand had called on the British to surrender to the French forces outside the city, not to the combined French and American forces. Many Americans took this as a slight against American honor. Now, D'Estaing might have responded by saying that maybe if the Continentals had actually showed up by the time he issued his request, that he might have had cause to call for surrender to both armies. But he was more diplomatic than that and simply said that it was an oversight and that any further communications would reference both the French and American forces. Given the state of British defenses, the Allies opted for a traditional siege. After the battle, several British officers noted that had the French stormed the city immediately following the fleet's arrival, they probably would have been successful in taking the city. The British defenses were not ready and the defenders simply didn't have the numbers. But with the arrival of Maitland's reinforcements and several days to construct better defenses, 
storming the city seemed like a dangerous strategy. Even if it had been successful, it probably would have been a costly victory. With the British having effectively blocked the river, D'Estaing could not bring his fleet to bear on the city of Savannah itself. Instead, he opted to bring his army and artillery overland for a siege of the town from the southwest. The British would have their backs against the Savannah River and could be reduced over time. It took more than a week to get the artillery in place. Lack of horses and carts, rainy weather, and difficult terrain made the effort difficult and time-consuming. The American forces under Lincoln moved down towards Savannah, taking positions alongside the French. The Americans also kept patrols on the other side of the river to prevent any more Loyalist reinforcements from joining the British. By September 23rd, the French and Americans had gotten their first cannons in place and began to dig their first line of entrenchments. When the British saw the enemy beginning to dig in, they launched an attack against the French entrenchments. The French repulsed the attack and began to pursue the retreating attackers. This drew the French soldiers out of their trenches and subjected them to British artillery fire. The French took several dozen casualties before retreating back to their own entrenchments. It took another week and a half for the first line of entrenchments and cannon placement to be complete, so that the artillery attack did not begin until the night of October 3rd. Americans and French cannons began their attack mostly hitting homes inside Savannah and not doing much damage to the enemy's defenses. As seemed to be the norm in these operations, the French and Americans did not get along. General Lincoln found Destang arrogant and unwilling to communicate everything that was happening. The Admiral found the American forces of mostly local militia to be disorganized and ill-disciplined and simply did not trust them to be effective in combat. As the main siege was still being constructed, the Americans came across a small fleet of mostly Loyalists trying to join the British defenses. General Pulaski's cavalry captured a portion of them, but there was still a fleet of five ships with about 140 Loyalists and regulars aboard. Most of these ships were armed with cannons and could not be taken by the local land forces. Colonel John White of the Georgia Militia had only one other officer and three soldiers with him, but he decided to bluff. Overnight, he had his men build a series of campfires and make as much noise as possible, giving the impression that he had a force of hundreds of men. The next morning, he sent a messenger out to the Loyalist fleet demanding its surrender. The British force agreed. White had them come ashore unarmed. He told them that he was keeping his men at bay because many of them wanted to massacre the Loyalists. He brought out his three soldiers and said that these men would serve as guides to bring the prisoners to the main army, where they would be held, and guaranteed protection as prisoners of war. The bluff worked, and the five men took 141 British prisoners. The artillery attack continued for about a week. With the British defenses set up to resist artillery, most of the damage fell on the town, killing a few soldiers, but also several civilians. The attacks also started several fires, which threatened to destroy the city. General Prevost sent a request to remove women and children from the British Army out of the city, but because he refused to allow Continental General Lachlan McIntosh's wife to leave along with them, the request was denied. 
Under a traditional 18th century siege, the attackers would dig a series of zigzag lines moving ever closer to the defenses while maintaining artillery fire. Eventually, the cannons would be so close that the enemy would have to surrender or be destroyed. This is usually the safest way for a larger force to oust an entrenched enemy. The problem with sieges is that they could take a very long time, often many months. The French simply did not have that kind of time. Admiral d'Estaing was still worried that a hurricane might take out his fleet. There was also the danger that the British fleet under Admiral Byron in the West Indies could sail up and take out the French. Many of the French sailors, who had been board ship now for several months, were beginning to die of scurvy. No longer willing to wait, d'Estaing decided to launch a pre-dawn attack on the morning of October 9th two French columns would lead an assault against the center of the British line with a third column held in reserve. A small force of American militia under General Isaac Yugi would attack on the right as a feint. A larger American force led by General Lachlan McIntosh and Colonel John Lawrence would attack on the left. The attack, however, did not go as planned. An American deserter crossed over to the enemy and revealed the entire plan of attack. The American and French forces began to deploy around midnight, but due to weather and other problems, were not in position until after dawn. A heavy fog had made the movement particularly difficult. When the assault did begin, the defenders were well prepared. The Loyalist militia that had garrisoned the primary target, what was known as the Spring Hill Redoubt, had been replaced by some of the best British regulars. The defenders ignored the faint attacks and focused on the primary assault. The rising sun dispelled the fog, revealing the attackers in open field where they could be cut down by British infantry and artillery. Admiral d'Estaing personally led the attack and suffered two battle wounds. The French line began to falter under heavy fire and started to withdraw. A regiment of French soldiers of African descent that had been raised on the French island that is today Haiti, fought with notable ferocity and bravery at this battle, taking considerable casualties. General Pulaski, whose cavalry had been held in reserve so that they could charge into any breach that revealed itself, mounted a charge in an attempt to stem the French retreat. In the process, Pulaski took a cannon full of British grape shot and fell off his horse, wounded and unconscious. Several men from Colonel Lawrence's column managed to reach the Spring Hill Redoubt, but not in enough numbers to hold it. Several men were killed trying to plant the American flag on the redoubt. Lawrence's brigade suffered about 50% casualties. Now, the actual fighting only lasted for about an hour, but it was intense and devastating. The French and Americans lost about 1,000 killed or wounded, one of the greatest losses of the war. The British reported suffering only about 150 casualties. After the battle, the attackers called for a truce to gather their dead and wounded. General Prevost granted the truce. General Pulaski was taken to a nearby hospital ship. He never regained consciousness and died from his wounds about two days later. Following the battle, General Lincoln wanted to continue the siege. Officials from South Carolina had requested that the French come to Charleston, South Carolina, to help with the defense of that city. However, 
Admiral Destang would not accept either proposal. After burying his dead and tending to his wounded, the Admiral put his men and artillery back aboard ship and returned to the French islands in the West Indies. The French fleet had originally planned to sail north, where Washington hoped to cooperate in an assault on New York. But after the loss at Savannah, Destang determined that his army was in no condition to continue on any military campaign. Unlike the French departure at Newport, Rhode Island a year earlier, this departure did not cause American bitterness. The French had fought a bloody battle in the field, and while the Americans would have preferred to continue the siege, they understood why the French would not. With the French departure, General Lincoln withdrew his army to the north, across the Savannah River, and back into South Carolina. He returned to Charleston, where he attempted to raise another army, once again encouraging local leaders to raise several regiments of slaves, only to have such proposals once again rejected by state leaders. Southern loyalists were encouraged by the fact that Britain had managed to hold Savannah against a combined Allied attack, so loyalist recruitment picked up. Both sides expected a new British offensive against Charleston in the coming months. Next week, radicals in Philadelphia attacked moderate patriot political leaders, culminating in what became known as the Battle of Fort Wilson. This episode is supported by the food delivery service, Factor. It's spring now, and we all want to spend more time outdoors enjoying life, not the kitchen. Factor ensures you have fresh, never-frozen, chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals that you can prepare in just two minutes. Each week, you get a menu of 35 meal options, as well as 60 add-ons, including breakfasts, on-the-go lunches, snacks, and beverages. You can customize your orders to get as much or as little as you want each week and can pause or make changes to your orders at any time. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. It's the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, upscale options done easily. Now, they even have a special deal for fans of the American Revolution podcast. Head to factormeals.com ARP50 and use that code ARP50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box. That's code ARP50 at factormeals.com ARP50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Hey, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. Thank you to my Patreon supporters in the Alexander Hamilton Club, Trey Nance, George Davis, and George Hunter. Thanks also to Knox Press for support at the Robert Morris Circle. Knox Press recently released a new novel by David O. Stewart called The New Land. This is the first in a series of novels that Stewart mentioned he was working on when I interviewed him last year. The novel is a look at a Hessian family that settles in New England before the Revolution. Go to knoxpress.com for more details. I also want to thank Travis Alms and Curtis Johnson, who upgraded from Standard Bearer to Privy Council on Patreon, also to Anna Malzik, Frank Price, Tom Trow, and K.A. Cooper, who joined as Minutemen last month, and Jeff 
Vandermeulen, who upgraded from Sons of Liberty to Minuteman. I really appreciate everyone who is helping me to reach my goal of 300 Patreon supporters. If I can reach that goal, I will quit my day job and devote myself full-time to this podcast. I really hope that we can get there. Thanks also to William Pepper and Jill Baxo, who made one-time gifts via PayPal. And yes, William, I do hope to get to the St. Louis conflict soon. Also to Michael McKenna, who sent a gift via Venmo. If you care to support this podcast via an ongoing Patreon pledge or a one-time gift, there are links on my blog and website. Just go to amrevpodcast.com for more details. This week we covered the Siege of Savannah, which once again marked a cooperative effort between the French and the Continentals, which again ended in failure. British General Augustine Prevost's victory at Savannah would mark the end of his military career. Even though the French had captured his replacement, General Garth, Prevost left Savannah shortly after the siege lifted and returned to London. The 56-year-old general suffered from ill health and eventually died in 1786. His brother, Colonel Mark Prevost, took command of the army at Savannah. Augustine's son, Major Augustine Prevost, also remained in Savannah. French Admiral d'Estaing would return to France a few months later. He appeared at Versailles, still on crutches from his battle wounds at Savannah. Despite his personal bravery, the king was unimpressed with his lack of success in America. He would not receive another important command for three years. Admiral Francois de Grasse would take over as the lead naval officer for France in America. My book recommendation this week is a bit of a departure from my regular practice. I usually try to recommend a newer book for my book recommendation and put older public domain books in my online recommendations. The book I'm recommending this week is a public domain book, though, first published in 1874. It's called The Siege of Savannah in 1779 by Charles Colcock Jones. Admittedly, the main reason I'm using it as a book recommendation is that I've already recommended all the more modern books that I use for this week's episode. You can buy this book on Amazon as a reprint. I do urge caution when ordering reprints of public domain books. Often, these are just thrown together. Sometimes they're simply photocopies of books that the publisher has downloaded from archive.org or other public domain libraries. This book in particular is a very short one by modern standards, only 90 pages, but it does cover the siege well. But I put out that warning that when you buy these public domain books on Amazon or other online resources, you may not be getting a really high quality item. Still, reprints are nice for those of us who like to read paper. You can download a copy of this book for free as an ebook on archive.org as well. And in fact, in these sorts of cases, I usually recommend that you at least want to check out the book and browse it online before you put out the money for buying a paper copy. The author, Jones, is an interesting character in and of himself. He lived in the early 19th century Georgia, where he was a minister and a plantation owner. Another of his books is on the topic of evangelizing Christianity to slaves. 
Again, the book I'm recommending this week is The Siege of Savannah in 1779 by Charles Colcock Jones. My online recommendation takes a closer look at an issue that I only mentioned in passing in the main episode, but it's definitely worth further exploration. It's an article called Black Haitian Soldiers at the Siege of Savannah by Robert Scott Davis, and the article appears online in the Journal of the American Revolution. The article takes a closer look at the black regiment of French soldiers who fought at Savannah. We generally don't think of the French in this era as having black regiments, but they did, and in this case they fought rather heroically at Savannah. This week's question comes from Warren Potter, who asks, Though it's not as cold in the winter recently, I'm sure the people of the American colonies struggled through brutal winters, no? We hear of the soldier side of the winter, often with encampments, training, and disease, but what about the rest of the population? Did the people of the northern colonies stockpile food? Did they rely more heavily on bartering in the colder months? Did they just go without? Well, Warren, it was actually colder during the Revolution than it is today. The period in which the Revolution was fought was known as the Little Ice Age. There's some debate about exactly when the Little Ice Age was. Some people put the beginning at about 1350. It probably ended about 1850. But during that period, temperatures in the North Atlantic were cooler than average, both in Europe and America. Several time periods within that age got especially cold. One of those particularly cold periods began in 1770, just before the war began. The winters were considerably colder. And keep in mind that in the pre-industrial revolution era, home heating systems generally consisted of a few wood-burning fireplaces. Benjamin Franklin had recently improved on heating by developing the wood-burning stove, but few people could afford those. Coats, shoes, and home insulation were all far inferior to what we enjoy today. So winters could be pretty miserable. A colonial home could go through 40 cords of wood in a year. That's quite a few trees. All wood had to be cut with axes and hauled to the home in what was a back-breaking amount of labor. Much of that work was done before winter began. There were no grocery stores to buy food over the winter. Colonists did what they could to harvest and store food to last them over those frozen months. If food was stolen or damaged, a family could be in danger of starvation. Let's face it, it was a difficult time to be alive. Reliance on your extended family or neighbors in hard times could mean the difference between life and death. There was some trade, but normally food was not imported into the colonies. Shipping food on slow-sailing ships without modern storage or refrigeration led to much of the cargo spoiling before it could reach a destination. Most transports that existed at that time involved goods that were more valuable per pound and which did not spoil easily, things like sugar or liquor. The main staples of a diet, things like meat, fruits and vegetables, even grains, were all grown pretty locally to where they were eaten. If there was a problem with the food supply in your local area, you might get some imports, but as I said, it would be very expensive and there would be a lot of spoilage. If you think supply chain issues that create food insecurity today are a problem, it was nothing compared to life in the 18th century. 
If you have a question that you would like answered on the show, please email me or reach out to me on social media. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story. It's unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.